Hello and welcome to Addiction Talk. We have a very special guest with us this evening. Many of you will remember her, Christy Carlson Romano. She is a childhood star. Um, you may remember her from her hit scenes on Kim Possible or even Stevens, and she's just doing a lot these days. She's a YouTuber, she's a podcaster, she's a producer, and we're really here to share her story because we know through the sharing of stories, we get transformation, we get understanding. And so without further ado, Addiction Talk starts now. And now Christy is joining us to share more of her story tonight. Christy, it's so good to meet you and for you to come on and to be so public about sharing your story. So first of all, how are you doing? Oh, man, I'm doing really good. Um, I'm taking it a day at a time and life is good. <laughs> That's always good. Now, where are you joining us from right now? I'm joining you from my little production office here in Austin, Texas, where I live now with my family. Yes. Well, we wanted to have you on because there's something so powerful about celebrities, particularly people that people know sharing and being so vulnerable about their recovery stories. And so that's why we really wanted to talk to you tonight. And I really want to start back to the beginning from you, for sure. you Absolutely. and where this all started. Um, talk to me about being a childhood star. You were on Disney. You, you know, you were the perfect girl. You had this image and everyone loved you. What was that like? Take me back there. Um, I call it a narcissistic purgatory because while everyone seemingly loves you, you feel very much alone and you're constantly consumed with your self-image and your self-development and your value. And I think over time as a child actor, it is extremely competitive. And when you're young, I mean, we see this now with social media and young people um, that, you know, they lose their self-worth along the way. And they're looking towards drugs and alcohol as people have done many, you know, many years before and will continue to as a means of self-medicating. Um, and it gives them that feeling of value. Um, I'm certainly not alone in it, but it was something I got caught up in over time, M maybe a little later, but overall my, my binge drinking was something that started pretty early. Mm -hmm. And when you say started early, I know age six is when you started acting. When did you realize that what you had experienced as a child actor or just the pressures and you said, you know, the expectations started to take a toll on you and eventually lead you down the road of coping with alcohol? I mean, I... I <laughs> Um, so I didn't like, you hear like these stories like Drew Barrymore and, and how she was sort of thrusted into, um, you know, paths to addiction and whatnot from the ages of 12. And certainly there are child actors that are suffering from that. But I, I find that so much of this behavior is, is partly genetic and environmental. So I learned a lot of these um, mechanisms, these coping mechanisms from, you know, my family, um, I unfortunately have some addicts in my family and, um, I was never really given a set of tools that was healthy for me, um, ranging from nutrition 
to self-care, to boundary setting um, and um, physical bodily awareness. Like a lot of that was just kind of not explained to me in a way that was palatable for a young person being sort of thwarted into the, the public eye in that way. Mm-hmm. So you had to kind of figure this out on your own. You're thrown into this place where you're, you started age six, you become a rising star pretty quickly. And how did you end up finding yourself turning to the alcohol? Was it an experience, experiment that you said, let me see if this will work for me or I just need to numb? How did you get there? Sure. So basically I was not working with Disney, which is kind of my big break moment until I was about 14. Um, you know, at that point, I think I'd smoked a few cigarettes and whatnot, but I didn't start drinking until I started clubbing. Um, and I clubbed because my older sister, um, who I don't speak with anymore because of her addiction issues. Um, it, it was, um, you know, bringing me into the fold of that lifestyle. Um, and I, I had looked up to her, you know, um, my, my mom sort of had a drinking problem, um, for a little bit and she's, she's been sober for a long time and she's thriving, but like, you know, it was, it was sort of, they, my mom and dad sort of had this like toxic relationship and it was surrounding alcohol at times. And, you know, my mom was my stage parent. So, when she was drinking, it just felt very normal to me that she would, you know, drink a bottle of doers a night before she passed out to go to bed and stuff like that. So to me, that was normal. And, Mm. um, and so my, my sister who was sort of very social, very beautiful. Um, I, I looked to her and I was like, wow, you know, my parents say that she's going to be, you know, all these amazing things. And yes, I am an actress, but I want to do whatever she's doing. So I sort of got, gone along with that and was given this toxic, like into nightlife. And since I wasn't really around like a normal high school experience, I was starting to have fantastical thinking about what it would be like to feel normal. Um, and nightlife was very accessible to me early on. So I started binge drinking, I think when I was like 16, 17, I think that was sort of my introductory uh, lesson to like my relationship with alcohol. It was like, well, you're at a table with a bunch of guys Um, and there's a bottle and here's, you know, here's a, a never ending screwdriver in your hand, like keep drinking, keep dancing. This is what joy is essentially. Did it feel like joy in the moment? Cause I know a lot of people say early on, you know, of course I know that of course it gets into the disease element of it and stuff like that. But early on, did you feel normal that what you were seeking? Did you find that feeling initially? It never was the kind of normal that my brain really was looking for. And what my brain really wanted was this sense of security and safety. Um, I think a lot of, you know, children of alcoholics and whatnot, we grow up with that fight or flight mentality, which, you know, I started to really learn about once I started going to Al-Anon. And I'm I'm sort of a double hitter in so far that I should have been going to AA as well, probably while I was going to Al-Anon. But what eventually what Al-Anon really taught me was, you know, that I had qualifiers and that these were learned behaviors. Um, I did get joy from dancing. Um, I think I definitely had anxiety when it came to being around people. Uh, and I still enjoy, you know, house music, but, but it's taken me a long time to understand my relationship to certain kinds of music, certain kinds of socialization. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I do think that being a child actor kind of uh, warps your relationship to socializing. Yeah. 
Wow. And you know, that's very powerful when you talk about even that false sense that I'm going to feel normal, because even when you did it, you still didn't feel the way you wanted to feel, which is so interesting to me. And why do you think it was so important for you to feel normal? Do you think growing up and being an actor, you know, in your teenage years, you just felt out of place to some extent? I think that, you know, high performing children, whether they're athletes or, you know, protege violinists or ballerinas, like whoever it is, with that high level of expectancy for you to perform, you are compounding trauma at such a fast rate um, in, in a very unique way. And I'm not, I'm not downplaying anyone else's childhood traumas here. And especially people who are in hostile, violent situations and, and essay situations. I'm not talking about that at all, but this very specific set of pressures that affects people that are having to be high performing and also high earning. Um, because when you think about the economics of it, the value of a dollar is your childhood memories. Like, how you can't really put a price on being a child, but yet here we are. So when those things tend to be monetized, I do find that like it really kind of is why you see people in our industry eventually lead towards, you know, this like destructive path. Mm. So what do you think, you know, just looking back on your own childhood, what do you think we can do to support more childhood actors? Do you think there needs to be mental health? As part of this whole, you know, a lot of times they're getting schooling and tutoring, you mm. know, and stuff like that. But do we need to incorporate mental health and counseling as part of, you know, the norm? For so I thank you very much for asking that. That's actually one of my biggest um, platforms that I'm building up with other like-minded people who may have gone through this or people who want to advocate and jump on board in this type of movement. There's an assumption that child actors are these spoiled rich kids that squandered their opportunities in life. So I think traditionally there's been no data collected. Um, there's been no evidence to support that, you know, hey, most of these kids have issues. Um, and eventually they're going to need to be given tools and a support system. If they're not gifted that, which most of them are not, most child actors and child performers uh, are at risk. And it's because their parents are either sort of pushing them in a direction that they themselves wanted to be in, or it's the fastest way for them to earn money for the family. Um, now, I'm not saying that's 100% of the time, but it is, I would say, 50% of the time. There's never just a clean situation here um, without some trauma. And even somebody who has a great family could still, you know, have, have some things to unpack over time. And if they're not given the, the, the support group, then it's, it's going to compound. Now, the good news is, is that the Screen Actors Guild has a program called the Looking Ahead program mm -hmm. that when you're a part of the union and you're a minor, you can sort of go to and they have social workers and they have therapists and they have um, some really great learning materials for you. And as a parent or a child, you can go. And they also invite people that would like to come back and sort of unpack some of these things. I have not fully used their services yet, but I have been um, associated with them for years and they've been trying to grow to a national level. And, you know, there are pockets of production everywhere in the country. Um, you know, we have our New York kids that are doing musical theater like I did when I was starting out. And we have, you know, the runaway productions as they call them in Louisiana 
and um, in other pockets of the country. So this is actually affecting more kids than we realize. It's not just the kids that have a dream and their parents take them to Los Angeles. And you, you know, you brought up a lot of interesting points. First of all, I'm glad that there are already resources out there and that you're part of that movement to expand those resources and to do that resource research to make sure that kids have the the support that they need. But you brought up a really good point about why many people get into childhood acting. For you, what was that? I'm just curious, was there a push there or did you already just have this dream in your heart for yourself? I mean, if you ask a six-year-old like what their dream is, it could be anything from like, my daughter wants to be Ursula, you know? Like, And I'm like, do you really want to be a villain? Come on, can we at least be a hero? (laughs) And it's like, God, I hope that's not her path. But at the moment, that's what she wants. So we buy her the Ursula toys and we, you know, watch the YouTube videos of somebody making, you know, some piece of art that's Ursula themed. You as a parent want to inspire your child, but there's a big difference, like I said, between inspiring your child, supporting your child in their development and monetizing. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, when you monetize it, it, it does make it a different art form and it takes away from the art form of it. I I would like my children to, if they're interested in the arts, have an appreciation for the arts um, over a longer period of time. Um, And um, it's tricky though. I mean, some kids are naturally able to handle this. And I think those are the ones that have the parents that are, are, are very uniquely qualified to do this, but it's not, it's not the norm. Have you already started thinking about it with your own children? I know you have two daughters and oftentimes kids do follow in, you know, the steps of their parents. Is it something that you worry about? I don't worry about it. I mean, my husband is my producing partner and we have a pretty healthy, open discussion about, you know, the paths that our children could take. I mean, if I wanted to, I have the the capability of probably launching my kids into YouTube fame and then becoming millionaires. But like, you know, I won't do that to them. Um, it's mm. their choice. And yes, like if a child has a dream, like I said, it's it's hard not to want to honor that as a parent. And I do I do in going forward with advocating for these children, I don't want to try to separate them from their parents. Like the the parents are just as much a part of this conversation in growth and um, advocacy as, as the children's uh, experiences are. So when, if your children did decide to go down that path, what do you think you would tell them? Oh God! I know. <laughs> I'm sure you you've probably written a whole book, but if not you, yet, <laughs> it's in the working. I'm speaking it into existence, Christy. Here. Yes, thank you. But um, you know, what do you feel like you would tell them that you wish you had known, or somebody had even said right. to you as a you know a ten year old or sixteen year old? I I think that they shouldn't take it seriously. I think that the focus should still very much be on their childhoods. Um, To my mom's credit, she would pull me out of California. We would go back to where I was from. And while I was feeling very dislocated from the normal quality of life that I had like actually like you know, yearned for, I still had some experiences that I can look back to. And then I ended up at 18 leaving to go to college in New York City, which a lot of people said was a mistake at the time. I had, you know, been testing for a bunch of TV shows and I had a pilot with the producers of Friends. And I extracted myself as fast as possible in a subconscious way. It was because I was, like I said, yearning for that normalcy. Um, But by that point, I think that 
there was stuff that I really needed to unpack. I probably would have been better off not going to college immediately and would have taken like a gap year off or something. I don't really know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to rehabilitate your kids immediately into like not working in the industry. And so again, that's why you see a lot of the kids go down the roads that they go. There's no rehab program for them. Mm, that's deep. And you know, when I think about it, what I think is so sad is that during the time that you started drinking, you said 16, you're starting to do that, get into that party scene, that you were kind of dealing with this privately. You talk about that. You've called it kind of like a private breakdown previously. Yeah. Why did you, why do you feel that during this time that there was like the secrecy around what was really going on for you? Well, when we look at the early 2000s, um, you know, binge drinking was normalized. I mean, there's all sorts of club songs like shots, shots, shots. I mean, that was the mentality. I mean, if we look at the body positivity and will I say it negativity that was sort of confronted with everybody. It was the Paris Hilton heroin chic look like everyone was starving themselves. Everyone was getting drunk. Everyone was smoking a million cigarettes. It was a horrible time for mental health and everyone like really wasn't connecting. There was no place to connect. And now we're at a wonderful time digitally where we can talk about mental health, destigmatize it, be honest and authentic about, you know, not white knuckling it, sharing our emotions. And I, I feel very blessed and, and lucky that I have had some Al-Anon in my past. Um, I transparently am not working my steps, but I, I, I intend to continue to stay sober and eventually on my path to find a sponsor um, and, and to work the steps, you know, over time, it's not something that I would want to rush and I'm very serious about my sobriety. So, so yeah, like I said, I, I, I there's no easy answer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, did you, did you talk to anybody? Because I agree with you now we have so many resources, like on the internet, you can look up the sober community and right. there are places to turn to where you feel like people get it. But, yeah. you know, you talk about the 2000s, we didn't really have that. You know, we didn't have uh, the Instagrams and things like okay. that or communities that you could find online. So did you confide in anyone at that time or did you write in a journal? Like, how were you processing what you were going through? I didn't really understand that I had an issue with alcohol until uh, right about the time I got pregnant with my first daughter. Um, I thought, you know, there were times in my life when I had um, actively sought out, um, you know, medication for myself, you know, <laughs> and, and just thought, okay, well, I'm doing this because it feels good. I'm doing this because it helps me feel relevant. And I'm doing this to meet people, meet men, um, meet friends, whatever. I just, I was kind of what you call caught up. And, um, so I didn't really, I didn't really think it wasn't normal until mm -hmm. I was, you know, I was already married too. Like I was married, um, my poor husband and I had some some dark times. We had some times when we really had to to look towards each other. Um, I wouldn't say that I was. I was going to say I wouldn't say that I was binge drinking once I got married. But if I was drinking, it would be to the point where it wasn't really healthy for me. And so by that point, you know, addiction, alcohol addiction, can look very different. Um, and it's a. I would think it's a spectrum. But your relationship to alcohol. Um, is important for you to truly, truly understand. Now, the cool thing about us all connecting on like, you know, hashtag sober TikTok or, you know, there's a lot of content being made for people. There's apps like Join Monument and stuff like that, where you can even find, you know, all sorts of kind of third party 
from home kind of care. And even something like this with American Addiction Center. It's, it's fantastic yes. that we can all come together and just, it's almost like a meeting at your house. Even if yes. you didn't, you know, like. And you easy. need to hear the stories because I think it's, you know, so powerful because even just hearing the nuggets that you've given so far, Christy, have been, um, I think will be transformational for some people. And what I really love that you said is that you didn't even realize it Till the birth of your first child. What oh, sorry. T- till I found out I was pregnant. <laughs> You're like, girl, I stopped by that I time. Like, yeah, so I found I was pregnant. <laughs> and, I was pregnant. My, and my well, husband was it about and I, that moment, Christy. Yeah. How did, what was the wake up call for you in that moment that said, hmm, I didn't think I had a problem, but now something is telling me that this isn't healthy? So I had, um, I had a really, uh, turbulent relationship with my family. Like there was times that I wouldn't be talking to my family because, you know, a boyfriend told me not to. And I thought, oh, this is what setting boundaries is. But I felt the pain of all of that. Instead of processing it, I just drank away the pain of, you know, setting those boundaries. Because people assume that when you set boundaries that, oh, I set this boundary. So that's not going to hurt at all. But it actually hurts quite a lot. And again, if you don't have that support system, um, it's, it's, how do you process? Right. Um, so I was very codependent. Um, you know, I had a lot of magical thinking. Uh, there are times in my life that I've depended on the wrong types of people. Like I gave a bunch of money to a psychic at one point. Um, you know, I heard like $40,000. I think it was, I think overall she spread it out. And then there was eventually like, she, it was a long, what do they call it? Like a long con or something. Mm -hmm. Like she was like luring me in little by little, making me feel like she was, you know, someone I could trust, someone I could talk to almost like a Mm -hmm. therapist. And then eventually it was like, well, you really, you really need to buy this crystal and it's really going to reset your entire energy. And, and it was like, okay, like whatever you tell me to do. And, and it was really a sad moment. And it's like, I, I, I call it my deepest shame. And, and I'll tell you what, that wasn't even my, my, my darkest hour, you know, my, my, my bottom, so to speak. That wasn't really my bottom. And it's actually kind of hard to say exactly what my bottom was. I think in addiction, bottoms can look different for everybody. And mm-hmm. um, like I said, again, addiction and relationship alcohols, there's a spectrum to it. And when you get serious about sobriety, you, you, <laughs> you, you don't see things in black and white over time. Um, it, it helps you process a lot of the sh- stuff that happened. <laughs> You're like, okay, everything's not oh. black and white. There's some gray in there mm-hmm. and that's okay that the gray matter exists. <laughs> no. And I think that was powerful. But, you know, going back to that, realizing, you know, when you found out you were pregnant for your daughter, you have this wake up call, mm-hmm. kind of this aha moment mm-hmm. about what's been going on with you. Did you decide at that moment that I've got to change and be sober for the rest of my life? Was it a decision no. in that moment or just you were thinking, oh, this is just for the pregnancy, but then realized this has to continue? That's a really great question. Um, so my husband and I decided we were going to go to some counseling, um, like right after we found out I was pregnant. And um, we, he said, honey, like you've been suffering for a long time with just not understanding yourself. And, you know, this is just one thing to unpack here. Like, w- let me, let me go in the room with you and let's work on us for the sake of our baby and our family. And like, let's build the family that you always wanted. And he gave me my dignity back. I, I love him so much for that. Um, and so it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I, I see him. He's not running away from me. He, he loves me and he's giving me this opportunity. So one of the things that he had asked 
was for me to just stop. Obviously, I was going to stop drinking. That was like not even a question. Um, but uh, it started to to really align me with not only my baby growing inside me, but it was the first time that I wanted to eat again. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I think I was kind of having a borderline eating disorder, uh, which I've talked about in my YouTube and stuff. But like, again, it was that body image. It was that control of, okay, well, I don't have to eat. I'm just gonna, you know, go out and drink. And I don't know, it was just a weird time. Like I wasn't taking care of myself. And so mm -hmm. when I got pregnant and I stopped drinking and I started, you know, talking to my husband in a way that was respectful and kind and loving and that I was getting that back from him, life became a lot clearer. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of these loud noises that were these tapes that play in our head from our childhood, I just kind of had to put them on pause. And um, I don't know if people have talked to you about addiction, but it's like it exists and it's kind of like grief where uh, you have to learn to live with it. You can't ever like just not like pretend it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why they say that the first step is admitting that you have a problem. No, um, that's huge. Yes. And you know what I thought, and I wanted to make sure I didn't brush over this. Did you say that your husband also said he didn't want you to drink? Was that sure. Yeah, no, he, he did. He absolutely did. Yeah. Uh -huh. And yeah. did that play a role too? Just hearing him say that, was that the first time you kind of heard him say, Hey, I really need you to do this too. Cause I think there are a lot of families that wonder how do you approach that subject? You know, <laughs> just him saying that to you, like, honey, I had already had like a couple years before meeting him. I was in those Al-Anon meetings. And so like, I, 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 I kind of understood what it meant to be frustrated. Um, but I myself wasn't taking any accountability. And so what that process looked like for me was him being like, you need to take accountability. Cause my husband was a Marine. Um, he's a former Marine. And so it's like his accountability is so strict to himself and the life that he's lived. And, there was no way I could fight with that. You know mm. what I'm saying? Like I've been, I've been, I've been in relationships or I've my, even my family members are some of the people that don't take accountability and they just keep, you know, living their lives. And like, now I see after six years of sobriety where that's taken them, see? And a lot of being a child actor kind of forces you into a transactional way of thinking. So I told my husband this when we were, you know, in therapy. And I was like, ah, you have to explain stuff to me to, to really stop drinking. I need to know what's in my benefit. And like, that's such like a newly, you know, like, well, how am I going to benefit from not drinking and getting drunk and being able to like cope that way? Um, and, and he, he really kind of just promised me that over time he would, I would see. Um, mm -hmm. And it really is such a daily gift for me if I listen to it and um, if I, if I kind of try to, and even now, like if I was in my steps, I would probably be able to hear my, uh, the voice of my higher power, like telling me what to do more often. I need to meditate. I need to do this, but uh, it's my journey, you know, and it's not perfect, but hmm. yeah. But I love what you said there, Christy. It's a daily gift mm -hmm. and that your husband said, Hey, I know you can't see it in this moment. But down the line, if you follow this path, you're going to see that. So when you talk about as a daily gift, what is the gift for you? Is it be the clarity? What's the gift in it? Yeah, exactly. It's it's the clarity. It's the mm -hmm. it's the it's the truth. It's the authenticity. 
Um, you know, it's, it's that authenticity that I've always really sought in, in wholesomeness and magical thinking. Like I, I really, I really think that that magical thinking is put there because we, we want that wholesomeness, but eventually it's like you lose it in yourself too. So, um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy that I can say that I'm a pretty authentic person. Um, and I can't say that I was that way before. Do you feel, you know, that feeling of normalcy that you had been searching for? Do you feel like you've found that now? No, I don't. I mean, it's a struggle for me because I think, you know, I'm a content creator and, um, I work with my husband and I have these little kids. And so it's like right now, it's not super easy to just like coast off of like some of the healing that I've done. Like it's not enough to just be like, okay, I'm sober for X amount of years. It's it, while it is a daily gift, it's also, it's a daily responsibility too. Um, but one that makes you feel stronger, one that makes you almost feel like a soldier. And yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm proud of it. So daily, what keeps you sober? I know you said you haven't been actively working your steps as much as you'd like to, but what keeps you sober? Is it a saying? Do you have a a mantra affirmation? Um, What keeps you there? Um, The love of my family um, and also the boundaries that I've set for people that are my qualifiers, my triggers, uh, once I gave myself the gift of these boundaries and like let these people kind of take their own roads that led them away from me, um, because, you know, these people are also in their own addictions and they're not able to really heal. But sometimes it's like that concept of giving someone their dignity back where it's like, okay, you've got to go do your thing, but I can't do that with you anymore. Like our relationship is not good for me. And so I think once I prove to myself that there are two paths, um, Mm -hmm. that, that, that one path was very clear to me. And from time to time, I, I revisit that not in a malicious way, like, oh, look at how bad they're doing. It's more or less like, this is why I do what I do. This is who I am. This is who I'm becoming every day by my commitment. And also that's, my girls, my kids. Like that, that's like obviously that, I can imagine those little beautiful girls. I'm sure just looking at them and seeing them. And you talked about early on, you know, the boundaries and setting those boundaries. Was that part of that boundary with your sister when you talked about, hey, I no longer talk to my sister because she's still in that? Were those the kind of boundaries you were having to make that were difficult? Because I can only imagine what that must be like. Yeah. You know, we don't keep alcohol in my house. So like any kind of visitors that come are made fully aware that this is sort of an alcohol-free house. Um, I've had some people come and stay with me and they've kept alcohol here. And my husband's been so supportive. He'll come to me and be like, Hey, like, how are you feeling about this? And over time I was just like, yeah, I just don't want it. We have little kids. Like, let's just not have it, you know? And I think even my husband who, um, never really had the same issues or anything that I had, um, he decided to be sober in October. So he's like, he's like coming on the path with you now. Yeah. And, and for him, obviously his journey is very different, but he can connect with me on that level. And it's like really intimate, um, that he did that for me. And, um, I'm not sure I thank him enough for it, but, but he knows, he knows because our, our marriage is, is, is based on respect and communication. And if alcohol was a part of that, I feel like that communication just can't happen. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so yeah. 
that's transactionally, right? That's like one good thing. <laughs> what boundaries? And as we're wrapping up this, I have a few more questions. Anything. Oh, boundaries. I, I, you know, you're just so, I just want to pick your brain because you sure. just have such a fascinating story. And, <laughs> and one of the things I wonder, what would you tell somebody about boundaries that they may want to consider? I know you talked about, like, I love what you said in realizing, hey, we don't want alcohol in our home. Or maybe deciding, hey, I can't have a relationship with this particular person. If you were to talk to someone who's struggling and saying, hey, I'm getting on that path to recovery, what would you say in terms of those boundaries and how critical that is? The boundaries aren't meant to hurt anyone. Uh, I think that, you know, with these longstanding relationships that we have with people who are unhealthy themselves, they make us think that we're doing something to them. But with self-care, it comes like this, like, you have to do this moral inventory. You have to kind of look inward. You have to say, okay, what's my part in this relationship? And I think if you start to look inward about the details of any relationship, you're going to see that you exist as a certain person in that relationship. If you don't like who you are mm. in that relationship, that should be that should be reason enough for you to want to take some space. Mm -hmm. And if you say, hey, I'm just going to take some space, you know, like I need some time to like kind of like do something for me and that person persists. I mean, that's even more motivation for you to be like, this is another red flag. Like, this is not helping me. This isn't helping me. <laughs> so really, it's about you starting to get to know yourself. Ooh, and the self-awareness. Yes. Yeah. So key. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about the self-awareness that people can learn, like I, I know people are going to learn something from your journey. First of all, you know, you're talking about setting boundaries. You're talking about self-discovery. You're talking about, you know, looking at sobriety as a gift. What other lessons? Do you hope people will learn from your journey? That there's hope. Mm, um, yeah, that there's hope and that there is such a happy life on the other side of something that you might not fully understand. I think that when we are stuck in the addiction, we only know life to look one way. But your, your highest self is on the other side of learning how to deal with being an addict. And that other person loves you very, very much. That other person, mm -hmm. that higher self is waiting to get to know you. And it doesn't have to happen overnight because that other person is patient and kind and holding your hand. You are the only person who lives with you your entire life. Remember that. I heard that mm. on TikTok. <laughs> No, I think that is a great way to end our conversation that there is hope. And I can just visualize, like, as you're saying that, that other part of you, that higher self of you, just hugging you yeah. and loving you and saying, it's going to be okay. And I think that's very powerful. And so I also cannot end without saying, what do you have coming up, Christy? I know you've been doing this cooking thing, but we got to know what's going on with you so we can not only support you on your sobriety journey, but just support you. Life. Well, thank you very much for having me. This has been a really wonderful chat. I don't really talk a lot about this. So this was one of my most exclusive, intimate chats. And I felt like it was a safe space to open up. And I do hope that, you know, maybe something I said helps somebody or, or maybe a loved one that they've been meaning to talk to. Um, you know, you can see me on my YouTube, but I'm always launching different formats. Currently, I have two podcasts. One is called Vulnerable, which is similar to what we just talked about with mental health and advocacy for young actors.
leaders. And it, I interview a lot of different types of people on that podcast, Vulnerable. And then the other one is really fun, family-friendly show. It's called I Hear Voices. It's co-hosted by Boy Meets World's Will Friedle. And we interview all sorts of iconic Disney people and, and like everybody in the animation world. I Hear Voices and both of those are available on Spotify and anywhere that you, you know, hear your podcasts. Uh, we are going to take I Hear Voices to San Diego Comic-Con. We're going to be doing a very big live show there. And so that's what I have coming up. If anyone's going to be in, in uh, San Diego for Comic-Con, it's going to be the Sunday. And, um, you know, I'm doing really well. Um, I'm not rushing on to being on a movie set anytime soon. I love being an actress. I love being a singer. Um, but really right now my focus is, you know, building up my family, the, my assets, getting out of debt, like anything like that. I'm going to take it a step at a time. And I'm not going to worry about, you know, when people are asking me like, what's your next movie? What's your next this? Um, aren't you tired about talking of the past? Like I'm making it work for me and it becoming a very authentic brand. And so my focus is entirely on content creation in that regard. And I'm, I'm having a blast. Well, you know, we had a full soaker moment as we end because sobriety, they always say, take it one day at a time. And that's what it sounds like you're not only doing with your sobriety, but with you're doing with your life. And we've been so blessed to hear your story, Christy. And so that's going to do it for another episode of Addiction Talk. Thank you all for tuning in tonight. And I hope that you were definitely blessed by something you heard.